0: You're listening
1: now to the Honest to God series with Angel Rose and Ahanu. You are all very, very welcome. My name is Ahanu, and we have Angel Rose.
0: Hi everyone, nice to be back.
1: Again, yes. We did a nice little recording there a few weeks ago where we were explaining where we were what we were doing and if anybody wants to look back through the archives they will find that we were on some really really amazing adventures and Gilrose gives a very very quick overview because it was like you as an American coming into Ireland for the first time a few years ago and now coming back with a great update on the fairy wraths, the circles, the stone circles, the megalithic tombs, the holy wells and all of the amazing things that we've done this year since we got back.
0: Well, Hannah, we're not quite ready to come out with it entirely, but we are working on a sacred earth waters project, and that has taken us around various places in Ireland, from holy wells to stone circles to megalithic places off the beaten path to fields of fairies and meeting with the little folk. So we will be announcing this quite soon. We are Preparing something very special for everyone that has been a totally guided trip by the female energy of Ireland. And we will be talking about some of that today with our guest, Penny Kelly.
1: We will. And one of the other things we want to talk about, Penny, when we connect with her today is about reaching out across the veil You were talking there momentarily, Angel Rhodes, about the veil between the worlds with regard to the fairy folks and a lot of people are aware that such a veil exists but they have no experience of it whatsoever. But one of the things that brought us to Ireland earlier this year than we've ever been was the fact that my mother died. She was almost 97 years old and it was the reason we came back from the United States to Ireland for that service and that burial and that memorial. Now many many people who have lost loved ones always want to connect across the veil don't they they all want to know how they're doing where they are and along side by side with this actually some weeks ago we did a session an akashic record session called the planes of existence after death and i found that very very reassuring with regard to my own mother's passing but penny today when she started her book Uh, the very first chapter she actually dives into speaking to her deceased father and we're looking forward to really talking to her about that experience because Penny as many of you know will, uh, will know that she had a Kundalini awakening and because of that she was able to become aware of various faculties and gifts that she had one of which was to be able to transcend the worlds
0: That's right, and she'll tell us all about that today because I have some questions for her on how she achieved the ability to just do that. So she'll be telling us that in great detail today as well as we'll be going into the history of our planet. Penny has researched the history quite extensively and came upon some interesting revelations that, you know, shocked her and her belief systems and may shock other people. So, we're looking forward to talking to her about that today as well.
1: We've had Penny Kelly on several times discussing consciousness and energy and her work with Dr. Levengood on crop circles and so on, including bovine incisions and her encounter with the elves of Lily Hill Farm and her subsequent book of that name and the learning center that she opened at Lily Hill Farm in Lawton, Michigan. And for those of you who may have missed those episodes, here's a little update. Penny Kelly is a writer, teacher, consultant, speaker, publisher, and naturopathic physician. She's been researching and exploring consciousness, cognition, perception, and intelligence for over 30 years, and she's written six books of her own, while at the same time she publishes books on the subjects of spirituality and health for others. Penny shares with us today her experiences of consciousness and the growth of awareness. I mentioned that Penny's learning center in Southwest Michigan, called Lily Hill Farm and Learning Center, and it's there that she teaches courses in developing the gift of intuition, getting well again naturally, and organic gardening. Penny has been researching and exploring consciousness, cognition, perception, and intelligence for over thirty years, and she works with Dr. Levin Good, who's a biophysicist of Pylandia Laboratory near Ann Arbor in Michigan. She has been deeply involved in community gardening efforts. She is a small publishing company, Kelly Networks, that publishes books on the subjects of spirituality and health. She holds a degree in humanistic studies from Wayne State University in Detroit and a degree in naturopathic medicine from Clayton College in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Okay, so everyone, you've heard Ahano and myself little intro. And now we have Penny on the line and we're really looking forward to this conversation today. So Penny, welcome back after a year and some odd months. (laughs) It's good to be here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Penny, you you would not have been aware of the fact that one of the reasons that we came to Ireland earlier this time was because my mother had died. And I mentioned that in an introduction earlier on before you Uh came online. And the reason why I raised it is because many, many people really, really want to communicate with the other side. And it was one of the things that I was very impressed about in your new book that you, the very first chapter you launched straight into speaking to your deceased father. Can you tell us, first of all, why you felt that was necessary to lead with that and then how it made you feel that you were able to communicate in that way?
2: Well, I guess the the only thing I can say about communicating with the other side is that that's been a fairly common and regular thing with, you know, with myself ever since the whole Kundalini thing happened. Um, When I started the book, I actually didn't start to write about this at all, but it was getting to be a long book, and I ended up rearranging the chapters, um, and I put that chapter first because... It it brought home right away the fact that we were capable of so much more. That there are other worlds. They exist at other frequencies. Some are, you know, they're just different frequencies. And that, and the whole point that I wanted to make of the book was that it was something that would be, um, how would I, how would I say it? It would be something that would introduce the idea. That we are capable of communicating with our loved ones, and you know, for me it's not just it's not just communication it's not just hearing it's seeing it's visiting it's hugging um et cetera, and we used to have those capacities, and somehow we lost those so i'm in you know I'm of this mindset that we we really need to recapture that if we can
1: mhm and you 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 set out writing this book but i understand that you didn't intend to write about what you wrote i mean you have a series of books there consciousness and energy yeah. volumes 1 2 and now in volume 3 and they they cover consciousness and energy indeed but tell us about how you you settled on the content that you choose for this book <laughs>
2: okay um it was a lot of of back and forth i set out i was going to write a book about intent because that was what i was researching i each year i give myself some sort of subject that i'm going to study in depth and research and report about and if the study goes well and in a year i'm done then you know i might write a paper i might write an article i might write a book and I had set out to study intent something like five or six years ago, and I hadn't gotten very far, and I was really disappointed. And then my mother died, and I was so distraught by that, um, I ended up thinking, well, let me, it's time for my annual assessment of how well I did with this annual project of study of intent. And I thought, well, I didn't really, I don't, I couldn't recall anything specific. Um, and so I went back through all my notes and my dreams and my journals because I keep very detailed notes of what goes on in my perception and consciousness and my general life, et cetera. And there I found this amazing experience that I had had right at the point that my mother was dying. And I wrote it down and then ran off to go back and and take care of my mother. And I forgot that I'd had the experience. And it was this astounding, out-of-body, you know, lucid dream. It was really a dream in which I became fully awake and aware out of the body. And I had a moment of just, it was storming thunder lightning i was walking around a lake and and i ended up brushing away the clouds uh knowing that i was in a place where there was great power i wasn't limited by the, the physical world and its limitations and and when i did that i knew i knew immediately i knew instinctively that when I reached up and brushed away those clouds and called for the sun to come out and stop thundering and lightning and raining all over me, that I was simultaneously intending to uh, wipe away the financial storms that I was going through because I had chosen to take care of my mother. It cut into my my income drastically and I was having difficulty making payments and I refused to give up on my mother. And so it, all of that kind of came together. She ended up dying. I ended up communicating with her. There was just, you know, just this intent to, to kind of introduce the fact that the world is much more diverse. We are capable of much broader experience and communication. And I wanted people to get that. Without me having to explain that, <laughs> I think I did toward the end of the book, which I won't say anything about at this point. But um, I did end up, you know, explaining a little bit about, you know, my in, my intentions in terms of the book overall. So it, I had a, I ended up with a little bit of of study of intent, but I am going to end up writing more about that. So Penny, uh, another- I
0: just I just have to ask you though, when you talk about these experiences where you're out of your body or you're in another dimension, mm-hmm. do you deliberately intend yourself to go to those places or do they just happen to you spontaneously? And if you say that they happen to you spontaneously, you know our audience is going to want to know why does it happen to you and not us?
2: <laughs> well, it does happen spontaneously. There are times when you can give yourself directions and have a particular thing in mind or a particular experience in mind or a particular, you know, goal. But the, you know, the biggest thing is training yourself to pay attention to what you're going through and to then step into uh, your own power, your own intention. At the moment that you recognize that you're in an altered state, you're Mm -hmm. in another dimension. Because quite often, frankly, you don't recognize. We just don't notice that we're in an altered state. And there have been times when I have been in an altered state that is so close to this one. And I will set up tests of that, you know, is this the same reality? and it'll still seem like no I I'm, I'm, this is just I'm awake and this is normal reality but it's not and then something will happen some little thing and I'll think oh you know this is the moment pay attention etc so part of it is training mm-hmm. uh part of it is uh having permission to use your power if you don't have permission to use your power you're going to let all of the experiences just go, you know, and you're not going to interact with yourself and your reality in a way that moves you toward those things that you love or those things that you're trying to make happen. And if you're just trying to get information, you know, you you have to let it flow. Yeah. And, you know, but otherwise, it's a matter of practice. And it's a lot of practice on my part.
0: <laughs> okay. And what do you think, Uh, you know, when... You know, like I can totally grasp that we're unlimited in our potential, mm-hmm. but what do you think are the things that actually prevent people from, I don't know, going beyond those boundaries, if you know what I mean? And I, and I know that a lot of them are belief systems, but what is it in the human that makes us think that we just don't have that kind of power?
2: You know, a lot of it is the the way that we're raised. We're raised in a system in which all of our decisions are made for us. We aren't encouraged to think for ourselves. We aren't encouraged to explore. We're encouraged to conform. And that has a huge impact on the amount of personal power that we feel we can exercise. And if you don't have permission internal authority um, to do that, then it's just going to, that, that's just a part of it. The other thing, which I think is another big issue, is that we come here to this particular dimension in order to change ourselves at the core. And that is a big task. That's something that if we come here, and a lot of people do this, they come here and they waste the entire opportunity to change themselves they spend all their time defending how they used to be oh no i'm this way i'm that way i'm not blah 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 you know etc um and or they spend all their time reprogramming themselves or their children or their friends or their neighbors and and by repeating the same statements about what we know about one another we end up creating these ruts of thinking and action. And the result is that because we're here to change ourselves at the core and because we want that experience, that experience of being forced to change, we sort of dig ourselves in and we hang on for dear life and we create all kinds of messes that then cause us all kinds of grief that then forces us to change our mind about something. And when we leave here, we go, oh, (laughs) okay, well, you know, I could have just changed my mind. I didn't really have to have all that drama and all that pain and all that suffering. But I think the the fierceness of the intent, the change at the core, is part of the reason why we don't focus elsewhere.
0: And what is, is when you yeah. when you say we have to change at the core, what's that, what's that mean, Penny?
2: Um, changing at the core usually involves. I'm going to say two things. One is power, which I've just mentioned, and the other is creativity, the willingness to stand in the mystery, and to watch what's happening. And to be aware of what you would love to see or experience or feel at any given point, or what you see happening and you'd like to be instrumental in changing, and then having the guts to take steps to do that, to actually make that happen.
0: Right. Do mm-hmm. you want to comment? Uh huh.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the remark you made about you know children, and when when we come in here, mm-hmm. what we're led to believe as it were, and we've had a lot of discussions over the many years about what we are led to believe and how it leads in, most of the time to slavery of some kind or another, mm-hmm. but I'm puzzled also because you mentioned about you know having a child that's unrestricted in its thinking and not kind of led to believe certain dogmatic beliefs but isn't there also the danger that that child might also grow up to be unruly and, you know, (laughs) quite uh, maybe rebellious, do you know?
2: Yes, 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 yes. Um, And unruly is maybe even too weak
1: a word. Yes, I'm trying to be Um, very polite here.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, We have great fears about our children being more than us, greater than us, better than us, um, and more powerful than us, um, or more powerful than we are. That whole fear of the power of children is one of the reasons why we are so cruel to children and so restrictive, and I think it's tragic. Yeah. I don't see a lot of that changing I think that there's a lot. I think we don't know how to teach balance. Yeah, So yeah. therefore, children well, lose.
1: What I was kind of trying to get out of you, Penny, really was where a parent might be very, uh, what's the word, uh, very lenient, let's say, so as to allow the child to develop in all kinds of ways in its own right. And in many societies, that leads to Children that are on drugs and that are in gang wars and you know a a pretty sorry sight uh, to (coughs) do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm trying to get at should are you saying that some guidelines are necessary and others aren't? Do you know what I'm trying to ask?
2: Right. So let me let me share a couple of things. Number one, you really have to be extremely disciplined. Not more lax, more disciplined. If you're going to teach or allow a child to be um, precocious enough, free enough to explore and experiment with their own power, if you're going to experiment with power, you have to be ten times more disciplined, and you have to teach that discipline and balance to the child. Otherwise, you are going to have a disaster somewhere along the line.
1: All right, that makes sense, yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think the other thing is that you can teach a child the freedoms in many different ways. So let me give you just two small examples. I had a daughter who was going through nursing school, and they come they came to a point where they had to um, practice giving shots, and she was very nervous about that. And but then the next day they had to come to uh, class and practice. Um, doing something intravenously and so they had to practice on one another getting this needle into the vein in a way that was you know perfectly smooth and wasn't jabbing the poor patient half to death and she came home in tears and said it was terrible it was the most awful experience of my life I couldn't hit a vein to save my soul I couldn't I couldn't this I couldn't that and I said to her sit down Now listen carefully, close your eyes. I said, now imagine that you are back in class and you have this hypodermic in your hand and you're working on your fellow student and you have to put this needle intravenously into her arm and you're going to put your eyeball right out on the end of that needle and you're going to watch where that needle has to go and you're going to intuitively and psychically and in your gut know where exactly where that vein is and what angle you have to go at. And there are these valves in the in the vein. Um, I said, you're also going to watch for the valves so that you don't destroy any of the valves and that you will know where to if you need to pull out and you know back up, up a quarter of an inch or whatever. And she came home the next day and she said, Mom it worked, and it worked every time, and I was able to teach a couple of other girls the same trick. And to this day, she is the one that everybody comes to when they can't get somebody who's got tough veins, um, you know, um, they can't put an intravenous needle in. She can do it.
1: Wow. Another
2: wow. little thing, another little example, um, was my son was a runner. And he would, and he was a fabulous runner, and he was racing in Detroit, and he, um, was invited to run in some big competition. And he said, I get so tired at the end. And I said to him, all you have to do when you get to the point that you think you can't go another step is just lift yourself up out of the body. Pretend that you are just about 10 inches above your head and you are not in the body and you're letting the full energy of the world flow through that body without you obstructing it and you just run from there and watch the run. And he went on to you know, be invited to run in some of the biggest championships in Detroit and he said afterwards, that little trick, mom, that really worked. And so they don't recognize it uh, in in any case of that you're teaching them some of the skills of consciousness right and yes. and some of the advanced um abilities that we have. They're just and to, to use Nathan's word, they're just tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the things that's how you begin teaching children in a very natural way. And very soon they have an amazing set of skills and they still go through all the difficulties that kids go through, but they are different and they are much more capable and much braver as adults than they would have been.
0: That's fantastic. And so it it really is a practice in that way, isn't it, when you're confronted with situations in your life and you need something to be different to basically get your wits about you and realize that you can visualize it any way you'd like. That's right. Yeah, that's and that's a, that is a daily practice, that is. To catch yeah, yourself in the moment. That's
2: wonderful. Yeah, if, if we all did that, I think the world would be very different.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Go ahead, because we want to...
1: Now, Penny, we, we've read all your books, and as we know, the, the listener will not really be aware of the Consciousness and Energy trilogy of books that you've written, and we're now speaking about Volume 3. But we want to move towards... uh, Well, no, let me first of all say that we want to run a series of interviews with you because there's no way in the short period of time that we have that we're going to cover the amazing information that you have covered in this book. And in In reality, we've only spoken about the first chapter really when you had those series of deaths in your life and the shocking revelations about conventional religion and so on and speaking to crossing the veils as we spoke about earlier on. Mm. But gradually you began to see as a result of these experiences and your exploration into consciousness that there was 2,000 years of covering up uh, distortions and untruth, and you know the the church is trying to sell religion to the masses. Can you tell us about how, in your personal research into consciousness, how it moved you into that whole realm and mm. uh, of of the church and its uh, its agenda and what you discovered?
0: Okay,
2: um, it was really pretty. Shocking. It was just one shock after the next. It, you know, it started with the death of my mother and and then my sister and then, you know, my good friend Dr. Leavengood and and then Aunt Rosemary and then Aunt Pat and then Uncle Ross and it's just a whole string of deaths. And all in like a year, year and a half time. It seemed like I was forever going to funerals and crying. And I was trying to... <clears throat> I guess I was trying to... Get some sort of, of anchor back in my life. And when my mother, when I was taking care of my mother in the last year, I found, um, or I heard a a radio interview and I bought a couple of books by a fellow named uh, Fomenko, Anatoly Fomenko. And, and I thought when I bought the books, he had made a claim that there had been uh no Jesus Christ, no death of Jesus Christ, no resurrection of Jesus Christ and I was like, Who do you think you are? You know, yeah. he, one of those smart mouthed new age idiots that, <laughs> you know, is is out there spouting stuff and yeah. I thought, I'm I'm gonna make short work of you fella so I
1: ordered... And in in a way, Penny, that's what you've done also. You've made some startling revelations mm-hmm. that somebody coming upon your book for the first time would say, who does she think she is making claims yeah. like this?
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it sort of backfired on me a lot. Um, I, you know, when I opened the book and started reading, because I expected it to be something New Agey. I, I I must have started Flamenco's book about four times, and in each time I would think, "Wait a minute, what are we talking about here?" <laughs> yeah. And I would start over. You know, I I must have read that first chapter. I don't know how many times. And what what I realized finally was just keep going, just keep going, mm-hmm. because this guy was talking about chronology, and I was not aware of chronology. And and so I I let the book and the reading sink in, and by the time I got done with Fomenko's book, I was just in a state of shock. He was backed with he and 150 um, incredible scientists. He's a mathem- mathematician. had had put together this whole history of the world that did not match the Roman history that is accepted by Western governance and Western thinking. Mm-hmm. The Roman, um, what would, what do they call it, the final column of history is the Roman version put out by a fellow named Scaliger. And I couldn't help it. Every time I read the word Scaliger, I would think Scalawag. You know, he, he, he sounds
1: a, like an Irish <laughs> He sounds like <laughs> an Irishman, <laughs> does he?
2: I know. <laughs> so, and some of the things that Fomenko um uncovered was were that the um you know, the chronology of Western history was off by roughly two thousand years, somewhere between eighteen hundred and twenty three hundred years, that a huge number of church documents had been Um, falsified, the dates had been falsified, Um, you know, little details that, you know, had to do with, like, Italy was once called Samaria, and the Danube River was once called the Jordan River, And, you know, Constantinople was once called Rome, and Rome was called Jerusalem, and Paris was called Babylon. It was just like, oh my God. He discovered that the entire story that had been made up around the Christ had actually been made up to take place in Europe and then arbitrarily moved by Scaliger across the Mediterranean because of the arguments that arose around this whole question of, was Jesus a physical man, was he born, did he die, was he resurrected, etc., and, and the overall consensus was, no, he was not physical, he did not die, and he was not raised from the dead, and so... You know, the, the that was just this amazing shock to me and the amount of evidence this guy has eight books um you can see that he has done his homework and and the scholarship in the in the work is fabulous and so I you know I finished that book and I, I and in spite of all of the the information that was so different in that book the thing that struck me as I was reading was this question that kept coming up. Why were so many writings forged? What was the political or the economic or religious atmosphere of that time that it created such a climate of fear that, you know, there was this frenzied, you know, forged effort to get documents out there that would say something useful or something truthful. It's like, what was going on? The, the overall impression was that that period of time in the Middle Ages, because the church did not really get its bricks in a pile until about the 1400s. And, and so I was like, oh, I I thought the church was in existence from, you know, 2000. Well, that turned out to be not the case at all. So then once I finished with Fomenko. I let the, my own, you know, I wasn't, didn't have any thinking about it, but I, I let my own nose kind of guide me. I was holding this question of what was going on. Why was there so much chaos? And I come across The Christ Conspiracy by Acharya S. And it's a very controversial book. And, and in it, this woman who has done this amazing work, had put together all of this information about the fact that Jesus was not a physical man, that the Jesus concept was something that came from ancient history, and that there had been 40-some previous Christed figures that served the same purpose in those times and places as we, as what Jesus, the idea of Jesus Christ serves in our time and place. Mm-hmm. And she just, if, if I had any, you know, remaining doubts, um, the Christ conspiracy just blew those right out of the water.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so, Angela d- often talks about the fact that there have been so many incidences throughout history of. Various groups uh, religions, cultures speaking about you know a resurrected being and a being called Mary, and various other instances like this that have happened throughout history, and we just happen to have grabbed onto one that came out of Rome and immortalized it but here's a question for you because you know our work in the akashic records and We've done a lot of work trying to uncover truth all the time, uncovering truth, and your work is a a perfect example of that. But with regard to the being of Christ, what we've discovered, uh, Jesus Christ, let's say, we've discovered that indeed there is an energy entity there. Would you, would you accept or agree that while there may not have been a, a physical born being called Jesus Christ, that we may have created one through our own belief systems?
2: Yes. Yes, that's true. I think the, um, the thing to understand for like the general public is that the word Jesus means teacher healer. And it was a name that you earned if you grew up fully matured and awakened spiritually and began to use your abilities to teach, to heal, to love, to spread goodwill, to bring peace to your neighborhood or your community, that was a Jesus. And and that was one of the things Flamenco discovered was that for each accomplishment in the old world, there was a name for that level of maturation. And Jesus was the name given to the awakened being who... And there were lots of them. There were dozens. There were hundreds of them. Um, and they were throughout all cultures. And, you know, they just... Um, they didn't see the concept of Jesus as a single individual man that we should worship or pray to, the whole goal was to develop the Jesus within the self. It was sometimes, it was the same concept that I called the inner teacher. And I think, you know, we have taken that concept of something that needs to be developed within ourselves, and then, like much of the rest of our civilization, we have externalized that, in the same way that we've externalized our clairvoyance by creating this, you know, concept of a television, um, and you know, we we can have our own visions, and you know, they and, and we can do those things clairvoyantly, but so, so uh, penny- or clairaudiently. We have radios yeah. to replace our clairaudience. We have right. airplanes and cars to replace our telekinesis, etc.
0: So, do you think just for you're making me just think of a quick question, and then if you could go back to tell us why they Rome or whoever bothered to create this huge deception. But I want to ask you, Penny, if we weren't externalizing everything, do you think there'd be a physical world at all?
2: I, I don't know. <laughs> I think there would be, but there's no guarantee that it would be like this. this. A physical world is a world where you... Um, where things, <clears throat> how do I say this? They they don't change unless you actually change them. They hold in whatever form, and and that is not the case in a lot of other worlds. The minute you change your thinking or the direction of your thought, the entire reality shifts with you. It's very dreamlike, and you have to be paying attention to how your consciousness is shifting or you get totally lost and tangled up in whatever's happening and totally distracted. So the, there are other physical worlds. There's lots of them, mm-hmm. and, and they're very similar. They're, lots of them have humanoid beings that live in them, and the whole purpose of the physical experience seems to be to allow the reality to stay stable in order to force you to change whereas in some other realities the reality changes constantly and you have to hold your stability so you get that difference there
1: yes 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 absolutely Now, Penny, let us remind our listeners, we're speaking with Penny Kelly, who's the author of Consciousness and Energy. There's a trilogy of books here, and we're speaking in particular about history and consciousness, which is in Volume 3. We're going to take a very, very quick little break, and when we come back, Penny, we want you to talk to us about when God was a woman.
0: You're listening to World of Empowerment Radio. Your station for practical spirituality in a changing world. All right, well, we're back now with Penny Kelly, and we are having a wonderful conversation. And each one of these things we're talking about, we could still expound upon uh, for at least another five shows, I'd say. But we're, we're getting a little bit of a summary here, and then we will be in later shows, we'll be going into much greater detail. But, Penny, before the break, we were talking about different realities, but we were also talking about history and how the whole concept of Jesus as an actual man was made up by particular people for their own agenda. So if, if you could briefly touch on that and then take us into the discovery about what was the original religions behind uh, the story of Jesus? In other words, what really came first?
2: Okay, so let's just kind of say that in the change from what I'll call a female-based um, society to a male-based society, which is what it was, there was a lot, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of fighting, a lot of death, a lot of Betrayal, etc., persecutions, hatreds—you know—the one of the things that shocked me about the Christ conspiracy was the uh, the information over and over about how blood-soaked the early Christian era was, and I kept asking why, you know, what was going on there, and the, you know, and and so that question really did not get answered. Um, And then I came across The Chalice and the Blade by Rhianne Eisler, and she was, you know, she started right out with uh, introducing information about the Venus figurines that had been found all over the world. And those figurines were, I had seen them, and they were typically described as um, some sort of ridiculous erotic idea um that they you know that they were all about sexual objects etc and and that pre that you know, what assessment i guess of the venus figurines was pretty standard for a long time until after <clears throat> excuse me somewhere in the uh after the women's a lib thing got going. Women began to be more and more educated, get into archaeology, and they started looking at these Venus figurines and said, you know, this doesn't look like a sexual object to us. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't. And they, after, long story short, was that they ended up, uh, realizing that this had to do with some kind of religious, uh, veneration. Of female, of the female figure. And actually, what it was, was a sort of a depiction of the gross, you know, the big breast, the big butt, the fact that, uh, of the earth, that the earth was the great mother who, um, was completely generous, who fed us, who gave birth to us in every way. Um, all, you know, that had become some form of religion. And so I continued to push on. And I came across this one sentence. And I, I just want to read this sentence because this was my turning point of realization. I was reading, um, a book by James Mellert. M E L L A A R T. I'm not sure that's how you say his name. But he, he had been uh, excavating in old Europe, and he had come across a number of these Venus figurines in, in towns and communities that were 15,000 or more years old. They were very, very sophisticated. They were um, brick houses, you know, streets, paved streets, wheeled vehicles, ovens. Uh, beds, you know, just very, very nice houses and, um, and they had these sculptures, these Venus figurines in them. And all of a sudden he was ordered to shut down his excavation. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he said later, the question remains to what extent this decision was driven by the emerging knowledge that behind the abundant and diversified artistic activity of Asilar, there lay the one great and inspiring force, the old religion of Anatolia, the cult of the great goddess. And I still get goosebumps when I read that sentence, yeah. because yeah. when I, when I read that sentence, I just burst into tears. It was like something so deep and so old cut right through me, and I understood, I knew in my bones that somehow I had been part of that, I didn't know what at the time, and that was really the turning point where I began to dig very, very deliberately, looking for books on history, looking for information, and I, one of the books that Ann Eisler mentioned was a book by Merlin Stone called when God was a woman, and Merlin Stone was a very colorful figure. She was a an art history teacher in New York, um, one of the colleges in New York, and she went around the world and and researched information on the goddess, the goddess culture, and what she discovered was pretty astounding that there had been this entire civilization that went back, um I thought at first, 40,000 years, but now there's evidence since Merlin Stone's work that indicates that the goddess culture went back up to 200,000 to 800,000 years ago. Mm, it was a surprised. time when women were um, in power, Men stayed home, took care of children, did the weaving, did the gardening, did the cooking, did the cleaning. Women did business. They were the priests or priestesses. <clears throat> they were the judges. They were the business people that conducted the trade. They conducted any wars that went on. And their their sacred symbol was the snake. And when I realized that, that there had been this other culture (coughs) hang on one second let me get a drink here
1: well while you're doing that let me just mention penny that uh, we're familiar with that kind of goddess culture here in ireland but very very closely uh, and hawaii angel rose just said but the situation with ireland was uh, slightly different because we had the influence of that patriarchal saint patrick coming in And the goddess culture was still very evident in Ireland up until that point in time. And, of course, what they did was they simply superimposed that Christianity on top of the ancient Celtic and Druid and pagan belief systems, which was very much goddess-based. And so as a result of that, we had personalities like St. Bridget, for example, but the original Bridget was actually a uh, pagan goddess. And then we also had all around the country, the, uh, what are called sheil and and what they are, they're carvings in stone that are pre-Christian and they are like the entrance into the womb of the female where nurturing took place. And the Christians really, really couldn't abolish them completely because otherwise they'd lose their newfound control over the people. So they incorporated these, this kind of goddess symbolism into the new religion. And we still have evidence of it even today. So we're familiar with that, but at the same time, the whole patriarchy was very effective in in destroying the power of the the goddess.
2: That's right. Yes, um, I think the one of the great tragedies of the patriarchy, which originated somewhere in the north of of old Europe. Old Europe is. Um, approximately where the Ukraine is centered now. But these tribes, there were tribes that came down. They were very patriarchal. They were never part of the goddess culture, or if they had been, we have no idea um, when or where they may have made that change. But they began moving south. Uh, we're not really sure why. They were very, very warlike. They celebrated male... Um, you know, the male, they were very uh, much phallus worshippers. They were very phallic. They they worshipped their own genitals.
0: many well, men still do that.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I
2: think there's a little bit of truth in that. And okay, I think, you know, I think they got into the metals. Uh, when you read the work of Maria mm-hmm. Gimbutas, um it becomes very clear that they were interested in the metalworking capacity of the goddess cultures who had fabulous metal uh sculptures and bracelets and jewelry and tools and um you know pots and pans and things like that uh, but they didn't they didn't make anything for war nothing no metal was used for war but the patriarchal tribes moved south and into the goddess cultures and there was that started probably 7000 years ago and they and that's what started all of the bloodshed and the the fighting and the argument when those tribes came south uh they were stunned by the sensuousness the beauty the sexuality the kindness the generosity of the goddess cultures and the goddess cultures were stunned by the warlike brutality and cruelty of the of the northern tribes, and the tribes continued to move south over a period of years of uh, thousands, a couple thousand years, and there was some effort to integrate and mix, Um and but then there was a turning point. And I think in the Catholic religion, that turning point was really with Abraham, um, the stories around Abraham. And I do talk in the book about how it appears that Abraham was sort of like the flag boy for change that said, we've had enough of this integration business. We're just going to take over. You know, we're going to own the world. We're going to run the world. And they began to destroy the goddess cultures. Everywhere they went, and their goal was total destruction.
0: I even have a memory of Egypt, of a lifetime in Egypt, that was matriarchal. Oh. And I actually had the the memory of being invaded. Oh. Yeah, so I I felt such sorrow because, you know, I knew what our civilization was like before we were invaded. Yeah. And uh, it was just a complete reversal. It was.
2: It was. It was something that um, was very advanced, very well-developed. It was very peaceful. It was, I think, the the thing that was, for me, one of the things that was most interesting was that all the the priestesses ran the religions, and the religion was the government. Yes. So... That made it clear why we had made such a big deal about separation of church and state when America formed. People came over here to get away from the uproar that had been going on for several thousand years. And it just, it was, they were fed up. And they said, you know, we're going to have a secular government it's, you know, we're going to have freedom, you can worship any way you want. And prior to that, that was not the case. Yeah. Whoever was in power imposed their religion, and it was, when you read the history and you get into the timeline and the chronology of it, you realize how crazy it was. And people, of course, became entrenched in their you know their particular religion and then the ruler would die or he'd be assassinated and the whole thing would blow up in their face and they'd have to change (laughs)
1: religions yes 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 now that's a beautiful note for us to begin to wind down here penny and uh, again let's just remind people it's penny kelly who we're speaking to and she's the author of this wonderful book called consciousness and energy volume three and it's all about history and consciousness now, you're talking about governments and, and religions and leadership and all of that, and this is a subject that's very, very close to our own hearts because we operate our own website called World of Empowerment, which is really designed to bring power back to the individual, to, to, to grow in self-awareness and, and self-power. And this whole issue of authority has been what we believe has been the bane of our societies all over the world, you know, where we kowtow to other authorities or we we accept other people's rulership over us. And they tell us who we are and and what we are to believe and so on. So in your book, you mention in chapter seven, and let me just pick out a couple of little Short paragraphs here very quickly, and then we'd love you to comment on it, Penny, and in that way bring us to a close today. You say, for weeks I was certain that everything I had ever thought, believed in, or done was a waste of time and energy. How many times had I pointed to Castaneda and Don Juan, or Jesus and his church, and said, this is what so-and-so says or did? And then further down you say, then it dawned on me. It didn't matter whether the church was right or not, whether Jesus was real or not, whether Castaneda had lied or not. What other people thought, did, said, or didn't say might be interesting, helpful, or disappointing. But it was not the bottom line for me. The bottom line was that I had my own experiences, and they were exquisitely real.
2: Yes. (laughs) yeah, that was a moment of awakening, I had been grieving so deeply because everything I had believed in had fallen apart. And and I felt it, it didn't dawn on me until that moment that I was my own authority. It didn't dawn on me until that I'd had my own experiences moment that I could speak from my own experience and my own truth. And I, at that moment, said, I'm going to figure out what's important and what's real for me, and I'm going to, and I'm not going to stop until I have put it all together. And that was how the rest of the book got written.
0: <laughs> That's an incredible, uh, like Hannah said, a place to to leave. And we'll pick this up again, Penny, in the next interview when we... Let's discuss, you know, the whole process of giving ourselves permission to be our own authority, to believe what we choose to believe. To, I mean, I think part of the problem and coming full circle with you saying that we're here to change our core is that a lot of us can't even get to our core because we're so programmed and fearful of what might be right or wrong or good or bad or how dare we go beyond the accepted norm that we, we don't even allow ourselves to get close enough to our inner self to have our own experiences. And so right. if you're willing, that's where, well, of course, this book we could, like I say, it's going to be a long journey here. But in closing, what would you want to say to our listeners?
2: I think, you know, I would share a little experience. I had a group here about a week and a half ago, and they were asking about, you know, how did I do this and how did I do that and how did I arrive and how how did I know, you know, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what I realized was that they were trying to get some idea of how they could duplicate my experience. And I said to them, no, I'm not telling you how I did it. Get your own experience, and they were they laughed and you know but that made a big impression on them because there had been this this attempt to ride to piggyback, I'm not sure what to call it to to be assured that they were doing it correctly uh-huh. yeah. and i I think there's no assurance you just have to do it. And you have to look at it, and then you have to figure out what that means to you or doesn't mean to you, and then you move ahead from there. And there's little tidbits and little pieces, and when they all come together, they make a very interesting picture.
1: Yes. Okay, we have to leave it there. This book called Consciousness and Energy, Volume 3 by Penny Kelly, is a no-holds-barred book about religion, sex, power, and consciousness. It's one that could not have been written without Penny Kelly's extensive experience with Kundalini, her extraordinary research into consciousness, and her critical ability to synthesize and present information. It presents an entirely different view of history, the true nature of reality, what is possible within it, what we used to be, and what we're doing here.
0: Penny, just let everyone know where they can get the book and also how they can contact you.
2: Um, the book is available on Amazon. You have to type in the whole thing, Consciousness and Energy, Volume 3. And um, you can contact me at my website, www.pennykelly.com. No extra E's in Penny or Kelly. And uh Or you can just send me an email directly, penny at pennykelly.com.
0: All right. Thank you, Penny. We'll talk again really soon.
2: Was oh, you're Thank so you. welcome. Thank
1: you for having me. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Angela
0: Rose and Ahanu on World of Empowerment Radio, your station
1: for practical spirituality in a changing world.